Well, good morning again, the COVID congregation. Glad that you could be with us this morning, even if it's virtual. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 and verses 30 to 44, if you want to turn there. Um, It feels like, in in reality, that we have not been together for some time. It's been a while since we gathered in person. And few of us have probably really seen uh, each other face to face. Uh, And that's been, what, two months now? Uh, And most of us have probably seen um, very few um, of each other. Now, ironically, back in February, when we began this series uh, in the Gospel of Mark, we began by talking about how we tend to forget those who we are not regularly with uh, and those that we aren't always or at least semi-consistently looking at. Distance certainly can make the heart grow fonder, and I know you've probably experienced that, but I also know that it can make the memory grow a little fainter. And so at the same time, uh, I was also thinking that it's possible that you get so used to being with someone and are so often in their presence that they become so familiar that it's possible even when you're together, you may begin to take them for granted and fail to see how special they truly are. And so I'm prayerful that our absence will not breed forgetfulness, will not breed indifference towards one another, but an increasing curiosity about one another that continues even when we're together. Now, we've titled this series, Reintroducing Jesus, and it's a series especially for those uh, whose relationship with Jesus feels distant or has felt distant. It's also for those that even if you've been in Jesus' presence, perhaps you've stopped really looking at him. Our hope is to really refocus our attention on the incomparable person of Jesus Christ again, to be stirred and to even be captivated by him anew. Now to this end, the gospel of Mark offers us, I think, a very powerful reintroduction to Jesus one that maybe some of us have never met, or one who we have thought that we knew very well. Now this week, we're going to spend our time ironically examining Jesus' probably most familiar miracle. It's the only miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels. It is the feeding of the 5,000. And much like Jesus himself, it's possible that our, our familiarity our past uh, familiarity with this miracle maybe causes us to dismiss some of the meaningful application to our present lives today. And so I think the Spirit of God has something new to teach us through this miracle about the work of ministry. Now, I wonder what you think about when I say the word ministry. Most of our minds likely go to thoughts of pastors and missionaries, uh, those Christians who we would see as uniquely called. And for one reason or another, this special calling, which is often described as vocational ministry, um, that's dominated the kind of church's understanding of calling and ministry today. 
Now, historically, in response to some of the abuses of authority by the uh, Catholic priesthood, reformers like Martin Luther argued that God works in and through every single vocation. There isn't varsity-level Christians and JV-level Christians, and that he works through every one of these vocations and does so by calling human beings to minister in and through their God-given roles, whatever they might be. Now, Scripture supports the view that when Jesus saves someone, he gives every single person a ministry, even if it is not their primary vocation. The Apostle Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 20, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting his trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And therefore, he writes, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Simply, everyone, every Christian has a ministry and a message given by God. Now, before we discuss what we can learn from this particular passage in Mark chapter 6 about the work of ministry, we all have to come to the place where we acknowledge that we actually have a ministry. There are many kinds of ministers and many kinds of ministries, many ways to serve and different kinds of servants, whether you are a pastor or a painter, a missionary or a mom. God's calling on your life has less to do with what you are doing for a job and more with how you are doing every job that you have. Let me say that again. God's calling on your life has less to do with what you are doing for a job and more with how you are doing every job that you have. All of these ministries are different from one another, and they all, however, share the same exact mission, to reveal Jesus and so glorify God. So as a minister, you and myself, us, as a minister with a ministry, there is much to learn from this passage about how to endure the fatigue of ministry. And also how to experience abiding satisfaction in it. Let's take a look at Mark chapter 6. The first few verses beginning in verse 30 says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going And they did not even have time to eat. And so they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. Now, if you recall earlier in Mark chapter 6 and verse 7 through 13, Jesus had sent out his disciples in groups of two to combat the forces of darkness, to preach and to cast out demons. 
Now, having returned from that experience, they proceed to share with Jesus some of the stories of their ministry experience around the region. And in response, after Jesus has heard these stories, whatever they might have been, he invites them to go away for a moment. He wants to be alone with his disciples in a secluded place. So his intention in many ways is to get away from ministry in order to rest. Perhaps it goes without saying, but disciples need to rest from ministry because serving others is hard and exhausting work. And I remind you, I'm not talking merely about vocational ministers I'm talking about you as a minister in whatever role or vocation you have. Serving others is hard and exhausting work. The greatest and most capable servants can only give so much. They are limited in their capacity as humans. And at some point after giving out and spending all their time and energy, they're going to feel empty. Perhaps this is why Paul so often described ministry as toil and striving and work. Now, ministry is hard work, and those who serve faithfully will get tired. Christ-like service to others requires Christ-like sacrifice of the whole person, of all your talent and your time and your energy and your emotion. Such service might feel less exhausting if every effort was well-received or appreciated. But there's a reason why, if you read carefully, Jesus' early instructions to go out two by two, that also came with a warning about being rejected when they do on occasion. Christ-like service and ministry is often underappreciated or worse Even if you're a pastor or a painter or a mom or a dad, there's a tremendous emotional and mental and physical toll for this kind of ministry, any kind of gospel ministry, sacrificial service and love. Here, Jesus says that the disciples are working so hard to meet the needs of others that they didn't even have time to eat. They're tired, they're hungry, they're spent. I would argue that those who serve Christ in this way should hit the pillow hard at night. The weariness is is not the same as burnout. There's a goodness into weariness. There's a, a goodness about a sense of tiredness. But without rest, weariness will turn into burnout. See, there's a real difference between being tired in ministry and being tired of ministry. We cannot avoid being tired in ministry. But I would humbly suggest that intentional solitude can help us from becoming tired of our ministry. When someone is tired of ministry... They often begin to isolate from relationships. They begin to withdraw. 
Isolation is not the same as solitude. Isolation is actually warned against in the Bible because it takes place away from people, but also leads us away from God himself. The temptation to isolate, it occurs when we don't get the solitude that we need. We don't intentionally rest from the ministry. Solitude is when we go, yes, away from the crowds, but we actually go away with Jesus. And this kind of self-care is less about an elaborate vacation and more about a meaningful communion with Jesus. So there's a tiredness to ministry. As we continue to read, we see the disciples end up not getting the rest that they desperately needed And ministry ends up taking its toll. In verse 33, it says, after Jesus has said, let's go away to a remote place. And they began to get in a boat and go that direction. It says, but many saw them leaving and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And when they went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to teach them many things. So if you can imagine this tired band of brothers who have been serving together, they travel on this boat and along the coast of the sea that they're working across, they see the crowds running on foot. And you can imagine what they're thinking as they see this. It's kind of like parents where They have this great expectation for a family vacation, which quickly turns into a family trip, right? Whatever rest that they may have envisioned quickly is turning into more work. The demands of of Christ-like service, loving and giving to others is usually quite inconvenient and it is often unrelenting. The needs of those we serve rarely fit into our calendar or our clocks. It seems that there is always needs. Sacrificial ministry rarely happens when you are ready. And I would argue that most of the best opportunities to minister disrupt the best of our plans. Genuine service to Jesus will force you to make lifestyle sacrifices as a way of life. Now, as we read, Jesus' response to these people is an admirable example. It's one of those things about Christ that just captivates us. And it bewilders us in many ways because It's an admirable example, but if we're honest, it feels like a really difficult one to follow. Despite his exhaustion, despite the inconvenience, despite maybe his plans, Jesus shows compassion. This word, compassion, It's describing in the Greek a a deep 
gut level yearning to help. This is not obligatory, right? Jesus has a desire to serve and to love these hurting people. The Latin root of the word compassion literally means to suffer with, to suffer with. And compassion simply defined is the ability to feel along with another person. It's the willingness to empathize with the pain of another person. More than that, compassion is the feeling that stirs one to act in order to help those who are suffering. So Jesus sees the large crowds and he has compassion on them. And it goes further to say he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He sees them as vulnerable, as hungry, as lost. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. And he says that the good shepherd is the one who willingly lays down his life for the sheep. He further says that unlike the hired hands, hired to shepherd the sheep, hired hands are described as running away when things get hard or needs get too great. But Jesus is the good shepherd who steps closer, who even suffers in order to save. Now, several times, if you survey the gospels, we read how Jesus sees people. It says he sees them and he was moved to compassion. I think oftentimes we walk through the world with our eyes closed so that we may not see the needs before us. The truth is, as I began to say earlier, we can see each other. And yet, for lots of reasons, who we actually are and what we actually need and what are our true wounds, uh, wounds seems to go unseen at times. Like we see each other, but we don't see each other. But that's not like Jesus. Jesus sees us and he sees our true self. Unlike anybody else, we may miss each other, but Jesus doesn't miss you or I. He sees your shame. He sees your guilt. He sees your need. He sees your hopes. He sees it all. And not only does he see those things, Jesus moves forward. He steps closer to help and to heal. Now, that couldn't be any more different than the disciples. Oftentimes we read stories about Jesus and we put ourselves in the place of Jesus. Well, I'm going to do like Jesus. When in truth, most of us naturally do like a different character in the narrative. In this case, the disciples, their response couldn't be any more different than Jesus' response. We don't know everything they're feeling. But by what they do, we can kind of guess. 
It says in verse 35 that when it grew late, his disciples approached Jesus and said, this place is deserted and it's already late. Send these people away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat so they can help themselves. And in verse 37, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, "Um, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And 200 denarii would be like nine months wages. It's kind of a sarcastic remark in response to Jesus. Like seriously, Jesus, do you realize how much it's going to cost to feed all these people? You want us to give them something to eat? You see, Jesus sees the people. And the disciples, at least right now, see only problems. Where Jesus feels compassion, a deep guttural desire to help, the disciples likely feel feel irritation. As as Jesus is teaching in the middle of nowhere, it's as if the disciples are kind of surveying everything and measuring the situation and counting the costs and planning their exit. In contrast to Jesus, they may appear quite selfish. You can make them out to be pretty like heartless guys. But I wonder if we might be more gracious to them. I wonder if we might see them as what is described often as compassion fatigued. As compassion fatigued. I think compassion fatigue hits all kinds of ministers. Whether you're a missionary or a mom, pastor or parent, or some other vocation or role that you have, where you're serving and giving and helping. See, compassion fatigue is, is defined usually as a, a natural consequence. So we're not choosing this, right? It's a natural consequence, a byproduct of caring for or listening to or helping those who are hurting or even learning and hearing stories of those who are hurting. I think of in this COVID-19 epidemic um, of the first responders and many of the frontline givers for whom this is probably a real genuine concern as they have spent the last several months and likely many more weeks giving and caring and giving. You can easily become fatigued and not just tired, compassion fatigued, almost unable to care anymore. It's hard to feed others when you yourself are starving. And as much as people will say, well, just fill yourself up and things become so demanding. Needs are so great often that we don't have time to eat. And it's hard to feed 
when you haven't been fed. Maintaining care for others is difficult when you're unable to care for yourself. And even though Jesus, right, seems to be able to push through, the disciples get to a point where they want to push away. They don't have the capacity for compassion anymore. They've hit their limit. They've become realists as opposed to maybe romantics, measuring all that can be done by what they alone are able to do. Having perhaps filled in the gap by their efforts for so long, they find themselves empty, empty, and those who have been helping the wounded now are wounded themselves. Perhaps we can be more gracious to the disciples. Having returned from the mission field, worn out from ministry, hungry and tired, the disciples basically say, Jesus, can you send the crowds away? It's getting late. And they're really far from town and everyone needs to eat, including ourselves. And Jesus responds to the request. You give them something to eat. This is not advice. This is not a suggestion. This is actually a command. And the disciples give rather reasonable sounding excuses as to why they can't obey what sounds like a unrealistic command. And really it summarizes it well in saying, we don't have enough, Jesus. The disciples in their fatigue don't see what they have or even what those around them might have. They only see what they themselves don't have. See, those with compassion fatigue often only see what they don't have. They only see what they can't do. They only imagine what probably won't work. The fatigue possess no vision for what is possible and only eyes to see what is impossible. And so verse 38, Jesus asks them, well, how many loaves do you have? This is in response to the fact that they go, Wait, you want us to get nine months wages to feed all these people? So he says, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see, implying they don't even know. When they find out, they bring, say, well, we've got, we've got five loaves and two fish for more than 5,000 people. As I said, it's interesting. I don't think they actually knew how much they had. They never had asked, never inquired. They just assumed they didn't have enough, which is what many people with compassion fatigue probably do. They didn't think to ask if anyone else had something. And likely when they find they only have a small amount, it only confirms their suspicions. They have very little. And in the view of this big problem that Jesus wants them to solve, it may as well be nothing because it's not enough. Here's a, a really important truth. I think few of us believe we ever have enough, especially when we feel empty. 
When a big need presents itself, we immediately are drawn to like, well, what? I I don't have enough time for this. I, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough expertise to fix this problem. And we remain focused on the wrong thing, namely ourselves. I can't. And here's the truth. You're right. You're right. You can't. But as we see in this miracle, Jesus can. See, whatever little we have or don't have, if we commit to bringing our little to Jesus, he has the power to multiply it and to make it more than enough. It doesn't look like it'd be enough. It doesn't work out on a chart. But if you bring it to him, he'll do the rest. Many of us don't even get to that point. We stop it. I don't have enough and walk away. As we continue, I think it's important to understand that there's a message here for both ministers and those who are ministered to a message for caregivers and those who are cared for. Those who are cared for must realize that their caregivers ultimately cannot save them, ultimately cannot fix it. And sometimes it's because they don't often see. And sometimes it's because they see, but they just can't meet the need that you have. There are limits to what men can do. By that, I mean humans. There are limits to what they can know. There are limits to how they can help. There are limits to their ability to even care sometimes. And this is why we must be careful not to idolize our caregivers whether it be our parents or our pastors or someone else that we have expectations of. If we do that, when they do inevitably fail to meet our need, we'll villainize them and victimize ourselves. So we must not look to our caregivers for what only Jesus can perfectly provide. But there's also a message for the caregivers, not just those receiving care. For the caregivers, we see that, look, you don't possess the power to save or help or fix everything with the little that you have. You need help. And actually, part of The caregiver's issue is being willing to actually ask for it. And it's good to ask for help from others around you. That's where the disciples start, but it still wasn't enough. 
It's good to have those around you to ask for help, to help meet the need that you see. But it's likely impossible. It won't be enough. As a caregiver, as a minister, in whatever role you are in, as someone who is serving and giving and loving and caring, not because you're obligated to, because you want to, you must also go to Jesus. You must go to Jesus so that he could take whatever little you have and use it to bless. In whatever role you serve, if you will go to him, if you will get on your knees and, and give to him your all, whatever little you have, what little energy, what little time, whatever talent, whatever need that you have, Jesus stands ready to help you. And catch this, as a caregiver, who is responsible to meet needs? If you go to Jesus with the little bit that you have, he will actually help you fulfill the needs that he commands you to fulfill. He will help you fulfill the commands he gives. That's what we see here. He gives a command to his disciples and then he helps them fulfill it. We see the disciples bring what they have to Jesus. And in the last verses here, it says, then he instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups and on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves and he kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all in verse 42, beautiful verse. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of pieces of bread and fish. And now those who had eaten loaves were 5,000 men, which means it was more than 5,000 because there's women there likely and children likely. You see, after Jesus took the loaves and the fish, the first thing he does, he blesses and then he breaks the bread. He takes the little that is offered and what does he do? He offers it to God. He prays. He prays. How often for us, when you are facing a huge need, and you don't have enough, you clearly know you don't have enough, is your first response to pray? Is your first response to give it to God? Is your first response to say, this is all I got, Lord, you're going to have to do something with it. I wonder if that became our first response, how that might change our ministry. Jesus takes the little that's offered and he offers it to God. And I find it noteworthy that he didn't announce the amazing things he was going to do. He didn't tell them in advance. He simply prayed. Maybe he knew, maybe he didn't know. But if his example is what we are to follow, what I see is a man praying and trusting that God would ensure it was enough. Catch that? Praying and trusting that God 
would ensure it was enough. He wouldn't say, oh, don't worry, there's going to be a miracle. I appreciate Psalm 147, of which many friends have shared this with me at different times when I felt tired as a parent or a pastor. Psalm 147 at one point says this, God's delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and in those who hope in his steadfast love. Isn't that what Christ is doing? Hoping in the love of God to meet the need before him. Now it's uncertain exactly where the miracle takes place, but it like, was it from when he's distributing it? Is it just suddenly explode? What happens? But we know that without doubt a miracle happens because he gives the bread to his disciples who serve the crowds, right? He said, you give them something to eat. He gives them something and they're able to fulfill that command. Jesus just kept giving, it says, and giving and giving. And his disciples gave to everybody else. Jesus, we see, is ministering to the physical needs of the people. He is meeting their need to be fed. And yet, we also see that he is ministering to the spiritual need of his disciples. Twelve disciples serve more than 5,000 people. They were hungry and they were tired when they got off the boat. And yet, Mark boldly says, Everyone ate and was satisfied. I think it's fair to say the crowds were satisfied by the food and the disciples were satisfied through their serving. There are 12 baskets of bread left over. One for each disciple. Now, the hope that there would be a basket of food left afterwards was not their motivation to serve. On the contrary, these baskets are proof that serving through dependence on Christ will always satisfy, even more than satisfy. Certainly, the disciples didn't need a whole basket of food for themselves, but that's what they received. Well, in conclusion, I want to say that the feeding of the 5,000, as I began, is the only miracle I believe that appears in all four of the Gospels, which is interesting. And the most important part of the miracle isn't what we typically talk about, which is the multiplication of the fish. That's certainly miraculous and amazing. I think the most important part of this text is the compassion of Christ. And it's the compassion towards those who are helpless. It's also compassion towards those who are helping. Like he sees the hurt in all of us. He sees the need in all of us. He sees the suffering in the crowds. And he does see the suffering of his servants. I appreciate what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian and pastor who died at the hands of Nazi Germany, he wrote from prison this. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light 
of what they suffer. We must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. You see, the longer we view people by what they do or don't do, the less compassion we will have for others. We'll look at those in need as lazy or irresponsible. And we'll look at those who fail to provide care as if they're unloving or worse. Never asking about their own suffering. Never asking about the person in need. How did they get here? Or never asking about the person who is supposed to care. I wonder if they're fatigued. See, Jesus is unlike any of us. Jesus doesn't demand you do anything to receive his help. He sees you perfectly. He knows your suffering. And he only asks you to do one thing. Admit that you're tired. Admit that you're hungry. Admit that you're burdened with sin. I would argue that if everything in your life feels heavy or hard, it's possible that maybe like the disciples, you've been trying to fill the gap by your own effort or looking foolishly to men to save you. Jesus wants you to come away to a remote place with him. And truly in this COVID-19 quarantine, what an opportunity to do that. You know, Mark is the shortest of all the gospels and sometimes the other gospels, particularly Matthew and Luke provide um, some insight and some other context to the passage. And in the parallel passage to this Mark chapter six is actually in Matthew chapter 11. And what we read in there is that in Matthew, shortly after Jesus sent out the disciples two by two, which is prior to Mark six here. And sometime before feeding the 5,000. So somewhere in between there where they're sent out two by two, and then they go off to a remote place and they're feeding the 5,000. Somewhere in between there, Jesus actually prays a prayer. And here's the prayer he prays. It's in Mark chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is that you? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, if your yoke is not easy, and if your burden is not light, if you feel restless and directionless, if you uh, feel exhausted and worn down, 
If your joy is not being multiplied but divided, if you don't have any leftovers and feel unsatisfied, it's possible that you are doing your ministry or seeking to be ministered apart from Jesus. For he says, come to me. So for those of you who feel that way, you're invited to come to Jesus, to lay your burdens before him, and to know that even if no one else sees you, if no one else appreciates you, even if no one else can care for you, Jesus can. He is not only seeing your suffering, he's stepping close to your suffering and wants to give you rest for your soul. I pray you will find it with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the rest that you promised to give us in Jesus. There are many of us, Lord, that in our roles as as parents or pastors or frontline caregivers, wherever we are serving like Christ, wherever we're caring and loving, Lord, many of us are just very tired. I pray that you will compel us to Christ to take whatever little we have left, whatever little we have to offer and trust that Lord, you will multiply it and meet the need before us. And for those who need care, Lord, I pray that we will, yes, look to those around us for care. Look to those uh, who are, are in positions to care for us as, as those who can, but also not idolize them, depend upon them too greatly. To actually go to you, to trust you, Jesus, that you alone are the one who promises to give rest for our souls. We thank you for all that you're doing in and through our church, for all that you're doing in and through this community. We pray that we will not waste this pandemic, but use it as a time to commune with you, Jesus, that we might find rest for our souls and energy to love one another better. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.